I have a message. I'm going to walk through it with you um, this morning. Dang, the, the, it's called trusting God through tests. Um, and I really don't know where to go with it, to be honest with you, but I'm going to walk through it with you this morning. And my hope, and maybe the reason why I'm so tentative in saying this is because I want to be really clear. Um, as I was preparing this this week, I know that we all deal with difficult things at different times in our lives, right? There are some times that we walk in high highs. There are some times that we walk with uh, low lows. Um, and sometimes that's part of our faith, maybe before we knew Christ, while we know Christ, there are different things that we walk through. But um, when we're talking about tests and we're talking about walking in relationship with God and tests, um, it's very easy if we don't understand what Scripture says to misinterpret that everything we go through is a test of God. And if we believe that, um, then then our, our mindset and our, our image of God can really be skewed. It really can be perverted to think that every difficult thing that we do, God's testing us. It's almost like he's setting us up in paw, as pawns in a game or something. Does that make sense? People believe that. And it's really, really dangerous um, you know, I've heard people say some really horrible things to people when they go through difficult things. Um, I heard a story many years ago about, you know, someone whose child passed away due to an illness uh, or people that have had miscarriages. And, and we try and we, we, we try to mean well sometimes when we say things, but sometimes the things that we can say, our intent is to bring peace, but actually we're trying to bring answers where there is no answer, if that makes sense. And sometimes the better thing to do when we don't know the answer is not try to invent an answer, but it's just to be present. It's just to love someone. It's just to be present with them and tell them you're there and that you're sorry uh, and not try to invent something that sounds good in a box, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, years ago, someone told me about a miscarriage they had after looking for a child for many, many, or wanting a child for many years. And they felt at peace because someone came to them and said, Jesus knew that there was someone in heaven that needed that baby more than they did. So that's why the baby's gone and why the baby's in heaven. And I just thought, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know, and I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just saying in our, in our desire to want to be comforting to people, sometimes the best response is just to be present and not to try to come up with the answer. Um, but we want the answers, don't we? Don't we want the answers? When we go through difficult times and tests, we want answers. Um, but the Bible is very clear about some things, and the Bible is very unclear about other things. I'll give you an example. Who is the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father but through him? Jesus. You all know that. It's in John fourteen six. It's very, very clear. Who has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? All of us, Romans 3.23, right? Who, through faith in Christ, has the right to be called children of God? Anyone who puts their faith in Christ. These things are absolutely clear. And then there are other things in Scripture that we read that we may not necessarily understand or we may not necessarily know the purpose of why that thing is in there. Case in point, in our small group last week, it was a great question. 
It was asked on the side, but I thought it was a great question. Um, If you're in our small groups for Bible engagement, you know that we're in the book of Genesis. And last week we talked about sin and redemption. And Andy Lipless spoke on that last Sunday. Did a phenomenal job. Andy, thank you for being willing to be a servant and bless our church that way. Um, But one of the questions someone said to me after as they were reading through the rest of Genesis was, you know, the story of Cain and Abel is something that really confused them in some degree. And the question was... You know, when Cain killed his brother Abel, Cain believed that he was going to die, that someone would would avenge his brother's death, uh, and he was scared for his life. And God, in the scripture, says that he put a mark on Cain so that no one would ever take his life. Some of you know that, that when they saw Cain, they saw the mark, they would know that they wouldn't take his life. And it was kind of, you know, Cain's way of having an assurance to say, like, you're not going to die prematurely, um, which shows in one degree God's grace and compassion. But the question was, what was the mark? What was the mark? And, and I don't know what the mark is. In fact, nobody knows what the mark really is. There's speculation, but it's ridiculous. People have used that to, to justify all kinds of crazy stuff. People have justified uh, racism because of marks and things. They have all kinds of crazy stuff. Here's the point I'm trying to say. The things that are in Scripture that are clear are clear for a reason. The things in Scripture that are ambiguous, I think, are ambiguous for a reason. I don't think the point of that message or that story is that so we understand what the mark is, but rather we understand there's a significance, and that is the only one who is qualified to judge man for the sins of man is God. So he put a mark on him to say, you let justice and judgment come from me, God, not from man. And that's the message that I walk away from. And I'm sharing that this morning because when we walk through these difficult times in lives, we may not always know the answers. What we're going to talk about today may leave you with some more questions and actual answers. Um, But hopefully as you walk the journey with us, hopefully as you walk the journey with, with me and with our church, you'll see that there is light and that there is hope through what we're walking through. Um, we, are, we, are, um, we are in Bible engagement. We just wrapped up our first volume. We had uh, a theme verse out in, this, in the lobby for the last number of weeks on our Etch-A-Sketch. And, and I'll give you the reference. It's Psalm 119.11. Don't show it on there yet, but I'm wondering how many of you, if I actually just said, let's just speak this out loud, how many of us would be able to actually say it out loud that you know that scripture verse? How many of you? Good. There's a lot of hands. Good. So here we're going to test you to see if you know that. Okay. Not going to put it on the screen. Psalm 119.11 says what? It says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.11. Right. I've hidden your word in my heart. You can put it up there now. Thanks. I've hidden my word, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Let me just clarify this before we move on. Um, hitting, hiding, hitting. Hitting is not the right word. I'm thinking of the Phillies again. Hitting. No, hiding your word, hiding God's word in your heart doesn't just mean memorizing scripture. Just because you know scripture and you memorize it doesn't mean that that's the key to not sinning against God. The Pharisees knew the word of God. They understood and they memorized the entire Old Testament. Pharisees were considered whitewashed tombs. Just because you know God's word doesn't mean that you are a practicer of God's word or that you practice God's word. Hiding something in your heart is taking something and placing it in a place that's of great, what, value, right? You have something that's hidden Why do you hide it? Not because it's a secret, but because it's of great value. Things that I have of great value, you hide into a place where people just can't access it and abuse it. So you hide something that's of great value. The word of God is of great value according to the scripture. You hide it in your heart. Why do you put it in your heart? Because it's not just representative of your head. 
When you put something in your heart, it transfers not just from your mind, but to your hands, to your mouth, to your ears, to your feet. It transfers to a lifestyle. So when you hide God's word of great value in your heart, what it's saying is it becomes the core of who you are. So if I tell my wife I love her with all my heart, and I tell her that every single day, and I treat her like a jerk, I don't love her with all my heart. If I tell my wife that she's the most important thing to me, and then I spend six days out of the week ignoring her and not saying anything to her, I'm not showing her that I love her. It's the same thing with things that we love with all of our heart. We do it with our words, but we also do it with our actions, right? When we hide God's word in our heart, it's a place of our heart that gets committed to memory. It's of great value, and then we allow it to come out in the way we speak, in the way that we love, in our priorities, in the people that we, in the way that we have shaped our life. When we hide God's word in our heart, you can tell who hides God's word in their heart, not just by the words that they say, but because of the life that they live, the availability, the time that they give to others, the purpose that they allow their life to actually be about. We can tell what matters to people simply by watching them more than even listening to them, right? That makes sense? So I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That was a scripture, and that was for volume one. Today we're in volume two, session one. So if you're in our small groups with us this week, volume two is what we're starting, and we're going to look at session one this week. Um, Our kids are learning this as well, back in kids' ministry. And their summary, our summary says Abraham and Isaac trust God. But they're talking about it a little differently. It's a little more direct. And instead of saying Abraham and Isaac trust God, the kids are learning this morning, I can trust God. That's what they're learning. I can trust God. We're talking about Abraham and Isaac. And the faith verse we're going to look at for the next few weeks comes from 1 Thessalonians 5.24. The scripture says, God will make this happen for he who calls you is faithful. God will make this happen for he who calls you is faithful. Paul is talking in this scripture in the book of Thessalonians to a bunch of Christians and he's explaining to them of what's going to come and what God has done in them and what God wants to continue to do in them for his coming return and all the things he lays out to the people in the church of Thessalonica he ends by saying and God will make this happen. For he who calls you is faithful. And you know what's great about this scripture? The one who makes it happen is not you. The one who makes it happen is not me. The one who makes all things happen is who? God. God is the one who makes it happen. Now, there is a place and a responsibility that mankind has in the process. But if we just settle on this scripture and don't look at it just at face value we are looking at it at a deeper level. We can see that the message of Scripture reminds us God is the creator, reminds us that God redeems. He's the, re- excuse me, he's the redeemer. He's the restoration. Uh, he, he's the, 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 the restorer, I'm sorry. That he empowers, he promises, he fulfills. He is the strength behind it all, and he is good. God is the one that makes all things happen. And yet he involves us in the process. And if we do our part, we can rest in the fact that God will always do his. So when you're thinking about your life, think about the new song that we sang this morning, Promises. Great is your faithfulness. 
God's faithfulness never fails. This is our verse for the next few weeks. He will make this happen. Think about as you walk through difficult things and the promises of God, what does God say he will do in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our time that we wrestle with things? Does he say just do harder, do better, work harder, make sure you're doing more and more and more and more? There may be some things God's asking us to adjust in our lives, but ultimately spiritual transformation doesn't come from man. It comes from God. Ultimately, being saved doesn't come when someone comes to me and they say, I'm so excited. I led this person to the Lord. Bro, you didn't lead anybody anywhere. God led them to himself. God just chose in his loving compassion to involve you in the process. That doesn't mean if you weren't involved, nothing would have happened. It doesn't or something else would have happened. It just means God invites us into the process. He tells us to be disciples of all nations. But God is the drawer. God is the one who does the work. God is the one that does the transformation. Have you ever been, think about something in your life today that looks different than it did two, three, four, five, ten, fifteen years ago, depending on how long you've been in a relationship with Jesus. Think about the change in your life. And now think about how it happened. There may be some things that you know you had to do. You had to make a priorities change. You had to release certain things that maybe you were entrenched in. You had to embrace new things. But somehow in that change, you think differently now. You act differently. You live differently. Your priorities are different. How many times over the years I've talked to people about things where their posture towards things that were spiritual were like this with their arms folded, kind of like, huh, no way, I'm not doing that. Okay, well, I'm not going to convince you because, listen, I mean, I'm not a weakling, but I'm not going to be able to change the condition of your heart. Man can't change the condition of our hearts. Only God can. But as we walk the process through and we find as we commit ourselves to the word and we let God's word meditate in us or we meditate God's word in our hearts and we begin to practice that, he begins to change things. And I can tell you, some of the kindest, most generous people that I know today that are currently part of Bridge were some pretty nasty characters a while ago. You believe that? And I don't mean like they were in your face angry people. I mean like their position of their hearts were, I'm not giving. I'm not doing that. I'm not serving. I'm not listening to that. And yet over the years, what has happened? They have let God's word and his spirit change them and transform them. Why? So that has nothing to do with what the speaker on the stage is doing. We have no influence over people. It's the word of God planted in our hearts meditating on words on the word of God, allowing it to move, and then having, having us walk alongside people to encourage them on the journey. Ultimately, who's responsible for the transformation? God. God will make this happen. For he who calls you is faithful. So we're going to read from the story of Abraham and Isaac today. And like I said when I got started, the message is called Trusting God Through Tests. And this is a really big test. test. I'm going to give some very brief information of what what the story is about before we read it so that you understand the context if you're not familiar. But you can turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. We're going to read the first 18 verses of Genesis 22, which is almost the entire chapter. And I think it's important for us to read the entire thing because we don't spend enough time, I think, as people and congregations reading the word of God together and, and letting the word of God 
plant in our hearts. So we're going to read the entire story. But here's the background in case you don't understand the background of creation. God chose earlier in Genesis this man named Abram. He chose Abram that he was going to make Abram into the father of a nation, a large nation with many descendants. And that nation, the scripture says, and the promises of God would bless all other nations. As we know from the story, as we see Abram, whose name became Abraham, became the father of a nation called Israel. Israel was the nation that Jesus came through, the birth line of Israel. You see in the beginning of Matthew, if you want to see how this works, you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you can look at Abraham and you can see how it begins with Abraham. It goes all the way down to the birth of, of Joseph, who is then the, bio, not the biological, but the, um, the father of Jesus. Jesus' father was God himself. But you can see this is the birth line. Jesus comes from that. He's part of Israel. All nations have been blessed through Jesus, through salvation with Christ on the cross. God makes this promise to Abram. He makes this promise to him. He asks him to go to a land that he will show him. He doesn't know where he's going, but in faith he chooses to go. He goes. He takes his people. Abram's about 25 or 75 years old when this happens. They wait and they wait. And they wait, and there's no child. You see, Abram and Sarai, his wife Sarai, had no children. So how can you become the father of a nation when you have no children, right? It doesn't really work too well. But he has servants, and he has other people involved in his family that help him and take care of him. The point of the whole story is that God asks him to go and to trust him in faith. And he says he's going to do that. Long story short, about 15 years into the process, they have this great idea that since Sarah's never had children... And she's really past childbearing ages, that maybe it's God's plan that Abram would have a son through their handservant, Hagar. So I still don't know how that worked. I don't understand what that's about, but I know that Hagar had a child. His name was Ishmael, and he was born, and God interjected in that situation and said, Abram, wrong idea. That's not the son that I'm going to use. Sarah's going to have a son. Fast forward. All the way to the point where Abram is a hundred years old. And Sarah gives birth to a young boy named Isaac. Which, ironically, means he laughs. Because the year before, when the angel of the Lord visited them and said, This time next year you're going to have a child. Sarah hears this happening outside the tent and she's laughing about it. She's like, I'm a 90-year-old woman. Are you kidding me? This isn't going to happen. There's no way this is going to happen. And she laughed. And the angel of the Lord confronted Abram on it and then went to Sarah. And she's like, I didn't laugh. And she's like, but you did laugh. So what's the name of the boy? He laughs. Isn't that kind of interesting? Every time they look at this little boy and they remember his name means you doubted the promise of God in that moment. And yet God was still what? Faithful. 25 years of waiting for this promise to happen. 16 years old. We're in Genesis 22. And this is where we pick up the story this morning. Beginning in verse 1. Sometime later... God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Whoa. Some of you might be the first time you've ever read that. And you're thinking, why did I come to church today if this is the kind of God that we're worshiping? Right? There are some things that don't make sense. Hold the line. Let's go to verse 3. Early the next morning, 
Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Verse 5, he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the wood and the fire are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Verse 9, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its thorns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through their offspring, all nations, through your offspring, All nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Powerful story of God's test, right? Powerful story. I think I could have read the first two verses and we could have just stopped there just to to try to understand the gravity that was being asked in that moment of Abraham to say, after I told you, 30, I'm sorry, 40 years ago that you were going to be the father of a nation. After I told you, you would have a son. After I told you, Sarah would give birth herself to a son, even though she was past age. After you waited 25 years to see him born, after waiting 15 more years to see him in his young teenage years, I'm asking you to give him up. And not let him go to explore his own world. Put him on an altar and kill him. Who wants to serve a God like that? Not me. And yet, reading this at face value, people can walk away and draw incorrect conclusions about God, incorrect conclusions about faith, incorrect conclusions about Abraham, incorrect conclusions today about Christianity. This is the character and the nature of God? That's not true. This is one of those pieces of scripture that are harder to read than others. Why would God have even asked Abraham to do this if he was never going to ask him to really do it? 
what's going on here? We need to pause for a minute and ask ourselves what's going on here and how it applies to us today because it absolutely does apply to us today. When we talk about testing and being part of a test, when we talk about trusting God through our tests, it really comes down to, and I'm not a big formula person, but one of the things that I think we can, we can narrow this or condense this story into is kind of a formula. And it's this. It's faith plus obedience equals a sacrifice that's honored by God. When we as people demonstrate faith and we demonstrate obedience, the result of that is sacrifice or a sacrifice that is honored by God. Okay, now I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes in a little bit different way, so maybe we can, we can grasp this a little bit better. But, but those are the three components this morning that I want to talk about. Faith plus obedience equals a sacrifice honored to God. Faith means we need to get past. Here's what faith is. Now, I'm not talking about the Hebrews' definition of faith, the evidence of things unseen, etc. I mean, the kind of faith we're talking about, what faith really means in its foundation, is getting past or getting to a place where we can no longer re- rely on our resources or our abilities. That if it's going to take place, it's not because we are the ones that are making it happen. Does that make sense? Faith means it's kind of out of our control. And that when we take that type of faith, a step of faith, our survival is dependent on something else. In this case, God. I was trying to illustrate this over the week to figure out what a good example of that would be. And I was reminded of a scene from a movie. We're going back a ways, but some of you know Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when they were looking for the cup of Christ. And there's a scene towards the end where Indiana Jones, to get to this place where the crucible or the cup of Christ is, he needs to take a leap of faith from the lion's head. Some of you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, watch this. see that movie? Yeah. I'm really glad that that was him doing that and not me because whoever I was trying to save, they wouldn't have made it. (laughs) They wouldn't have made it. They made it. But a simple illustration to talk about faith makes sense. There is no way in his own strength that he would have had the ability to make that leap. No way. 
True faith, the kind we're talking about, is a level of faith that gets past your resource, my resource, my ability, your ability, to where we can no longer help ourselves. This is the kind of faith that's required when God walks us through a test. That we have to put our faith in his ability, his resource. And then we need to practice obedience. Now, obedience means that we do what God tells us to do regardless of the cost. Obedience has that last piece that's attached to it. Obedience doesn't mean that I will follow you and I will obey as long as. It's the kind of faith that we have that trusts God absolutely 100% outside of our resources and then add obedience, which means we put no markers or qualifications on our willingness to follow God. That's the kind of effort we do and the kind of sacrifice God asks us to walk through that not only honors him, but it gives him the ability to honor us in return. So if faith plus obedience equaling sacrifice honored by God isn't necessarily clicking with you, let me say it this way. If you're looking to have a closer relationship with God, trusting God no matter the cost is how you deepen your relationship with him. Trusting God, no matter the cost, results in a closer relationship with God. Now, the trusting God part might be a little easier for you to grasp because you know there's certain things that you don't have the ability to do in your own strength. Okay, so you're going to be forced in that. But the second one is where a lot of times we can get tripped up. Because obedience doesn't have a qualifier on it. Obedience means whatever the cost, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God when I understand it. I will obey him. I will obey God when I understand it. I will obey God when I don't understand it. I will obey God when it makes sense. I will obey God when it doesn't make sense. How often do we come to that place where obedience is where we get tripped up because we don't understand it and it doesn't make sense and yet God still calls us to walk in that way. So when you're in the midst of a test, How do you experience a closer relationship with God like Abraham did through the test with Isaac? Faith plus obedience. Or you trust him no matter the cost. And that's what we see in this situation. You trust God no matter the cost. So my question to you is a question I have when I was looking at it this week. Is how could Abraham have the faith to obey God? He asks God. God asks Abraham to kill his only son. How could Abraham have actually had the faith to obey him? Because I'm willing to bet that none of us would have been willing to do that at face value. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? How did Abraham, and if you remember from the story, he didn't contemplate it. God didn't come to him and say, do this. And then we see sometime later, after praying through this, after going through prayer and fasting, after consulting his friends, after journaling for two months, you don't hear it. You say the next day he got up and he took a three-day journey, right? That's what the scripture said, the very next day. How in the world could Abraham been at a place where he was willing so quickly and so easily to obey God when God was asking him to do what we would consider the impossible? that we would never do ourselves. Two things I want to mention today briefly. Number one, Abraham knew God's nature. He already knew God's nature. Walking through tests and being obedient to what God calls us to be, it's important for us to understand and know 
God's nature through history, through experience. Abraham was in relationship with God for a long period of time. Abraham has story after story. If you look back in scripture, you can see where he interacted with God many times. In fact, you could go back in our world, because it was just a few weeks ago when we talked about God is our creator, you could go back to the very beginning and know, what do we know about the very nature of God? According to creation in Genesis chapter 1, when God made everything, Genesis one thirty one says what? Then God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was what? Very good. His nature is good. His nature is love. God creates. God upholds. God strengthens. He restores. He knew God's nature. And his very nature was the nature of a God who was caring, who's compassionate, who loves, who made everything good. He already knew the nature of God. And what God was getting ready to ask him to do did not agree with his own nature. It makes sense? You with me? He already knew that. It wouldn't make sense because that's not the God that he had a relationship with. We understand this in our world. In a silly way, and I'm not saying my children ever did this, but maybe yours have. There's a moment that a child comes into the house and comes and sits down at a table with you and has a conversation with you and says, is there anything I can do to help you around the house? (laughs) I just have some free time on my hands. (laughs) Would you like a toilet cleaned? Or should I vacuum for you? Is there anything around the yard I can do just to be helpful? Who are these people? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Now, Again, kids, whatever, I'm not saying that, again, children are all like, you know, have ulterior motives. But every one of our radars and red lights are going off when a conversation like that happens, right? What are we thinking in the back of our minds? What do you want? What happened? What news are you getting ready to share? Why? Because it's not the nature of that child, especially when they're very, very, very little. It's not the nature of the child in that moment to demonstrate this selfless attitude. Now, some of you are going to come up to me and point, well, my child did that. Well, good for you. I love that you did that. That's great. Your child should be on the cover of Time Magazine or whatever. I don't know. All I'm saying is that, and yes, it happens. Our kids are great kids. I know that kids, you know, there are beautiful moments we can all share stories. But we know as parents that that's not normally the thing that they do. So when it shows up, it takes us by surprise. God's nature is normally good. In fact, always good. God's compassion, his character, his love, his growth is, like I said, restoration. He redeems. It is always that case. When he comes to Abraham and says, the son that I promised you, that I want you, that you're going to see a nation grow through, take him, go to Mount Moriah, and kill him. Every little radar, every little trumpet every little sound and alarm would go off in Abraham's mind to say this is not the God I know this is not the God I know his character says something different why is this so important because guys can I tell you if you don't know the character and the nature of God you will be misled in this world that we live in 
Everybody's telling you who God is. Everyone's telling me the character of God and God is this and God is that. And I'm listening to people talk about things that make me sick when I think about it. And I go, that is not the nature and the character of God. And if we don't know the nature and the character of God, not just by what the Bible says, but by our relationship with him, we will believe things about his nature that are false. And when we believe things about his nature that are false, it will directly impede our ability and willingness to obey him. You with me? This is so important. I know someone told me this week, you say that a lot. This is so important. It is important. That's important because the world around us wants us to hear God is not interested in your details. God is too busy. If he really cares about X, Y, and Z, if he really was interested in this, why would he allow this? Why did he let this happen? God hates me. God is upset with me. I'm no different than this person and God's not interested. And they say things about his nature and his character that are not substantiated in scripture. It's only based on their emotion and their feeling in that time. And it's not rooted in truth. If God loved us so much, why would he allow this world to experience what we're experiencing? Why wouldn't he do something about it? Church, he did. His name is Jesus and the grave defeated the power of death and sin, which means it's still happening right now in measure. But Jesus said, you're going to have trouble in this world, but get your eyes off the world and think about the rest because I already defeated the devil and he knows his days are numbered. God is already doing this. And can I tell you even this, and this is hard for me to say sometimes, but it's true because it's hard for me to even think about God is less interested in our physical lives on earth than he is about our eternal lives in heaven. That doesn't mean that he doesn't want us to experience the beautiful things of the world. I mean, he created this world for us to manage and enjoy, right? But when our eyes and our minds are focused on just this place, we make decisions that aren't thinking about God's plans and God's priorities. We make decisions that are only rooted in the here and now and not for the eternal. We need to know the nature of God. We need to understand the nature of God. We need to know about his goodness and our, and the goodness that we know about him influences our ability to walk in obedience. Abraham knew the nature of God. That was the first reason I believe why he was able to do what he did. The second thing was that Abraham knew God's promises. He knew his promises. This is 40 years after the promises began. God comes to him and says, take this boy and I want you to take him to Mount Moriah and you're going to sacrifice him to me. That's what I want you to do. Abraham says, this is not the character of the God that I know. This is not what God would ask me to do. He's compassionate. He's loving. He's caring. He's good. Some people could look at it and say, well, we, we know that the Bible is very clear that God hates child sacrifice. Church, that happened after Abraham. You can look at Leviticus, you can look at Deuteronomy, you can look at the rest of the Old Testament and go, God hated child sacrifice. But that was all after Abraham lived. He knew his, his nature. So he said, that's not God's nature. And it doesn't align with his promises because how can a dead son be the son in which a nation comes from? I'm, I can't do this. This doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'm going to be obedient to God because I trust his goodness and I trust his promises. I trust that he said I'm going to be the father of a nation. I trust that when I was 89, or sorry, when I was 99 years old and Sarah was 89, that God came to us again and said, even though you try to figure this out yourself, I'm trusting you and I'm showing you that I'm going to give you a son, Abraham, through Sarah next year. You will have Isaac. I'm trusting you. In Genesis 15, when I looked up to the stars, God, and you showed me all the stars of the sky in Genesis 15 and 
and said, look at all the stars and try to count them if you can, so shall your offspring be. I remember all of these promises. Abraham also remembered two times over the course of his journey, you see in the number of chapters. Once he was in Egypt under Pharaoh, and another time he was in the region of Gerar under King Abimelech. In both situations, Sarah came onto the scene and the kings were like, dude, she's hot. And what did they do? They took her into their kingdom. Why? Because Abraham didn't say it was his wife. He said it was his sister. And both times God intervened. Both times. And both times the leader said, why did you do that? Our kingdoms are falling apart because of that. And one time in the Pharaoh's kingdom, all kinds of horrible stuff was happening. And Pharaoh said, get this lady out of here. This is not for me. God's intervening. And the second time with Abimelech, God woke him up in a dream. And in the dream, Abimelech says, I'm so glad I never touched that woman. And God's response to Abimelech, I love this. I didn't let you touch her. That's what he said. Isn't that cool? Abraham knows all of this. Why? Well, it's written in the Bible. It's already there. Like someone had to know it. It was there. But knowing that reinforced the promises. Even in the midst of Abraham's failures, God's promises were true. Think about that. Even in the midst of Abraham's mistakes, God was in control. You hear that? Because God didn't just make the promise with Abraham in Genesis 15, and we see it here in Genesis 22. I read that earlier. Twice, he swore. And how did he swear? By himself. He swore by himself in both situations. We're not going to go to Genesis 15, but I'm just going to mention in that situation, he made a covenant with Abraham where he chose to tell him, this is going to happen, and I'm going to swear in a contract, not just with you, but in a contract upon myself. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 6, 13 through 15. He says, when God made his promise to Abraham, look at Genesis, Hebrews 6, uh, 13 to 15. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. When God makes a promise, church, he keeps it. How could Abraham have listened and obeyed God? He knew his nature and he knew his promises and his promises never fail. Let me ask you this morning, do you know God's nature? What do you believe about the character of God? What do you believe about the goodness of God? How do you see yourself versus how maybe you think God sees other people? Do you think God views you differently than he views other people? If your influence and your understanding of the nature of God is influenced by the world and not by the word of God and not by knowing God and having a relationship with God, it will be next to impossible for you or me to obey God and to walk through tests to experience growth on the other side. Because in the midst of the test, we will see the test as an opportunity to fail. We'll see a test as something that was motivated by a mean God who's trying to make us uncomfortable, who isn't caring about our, our struggles, who just wants to see us squirm, who hates the fact that maybe we're doing something and is just trying to punish us. You ever had that experience? Why does God hate me, but he seems to love other people? What is that about? Can I tell you, if you've said those things and you believe that, that is not the nature of God. That's a lie that you're believing. 
And I say that not because, well, well Pastor Paul, you're a pastor and you, know, you have credentials and, and certainly how could you ever believe that? Oh boy, let me tell you something. Some of the stuff that we've gone through over the years, and I'm not going to tell you the stuff that we've gone through. I'm just going to say, you know how easy it's been at different things that we've walked through to experience pain and hardship and loss and relationship struggles and fill in the blank and go through these things and go, God, what the heck is going on? You know how easy it is to go through those things? It's human nature to look at that stuff and say, if I'm wrestling with this and I'm going through this, surely God doesn't care. That's the world's understanding of God's nature, church. God's understanding of his nature, God's truth is to say, when all this stuff doesn't make sense, do you know me? When all these things that are going on don't make sense, do you know me? Because if you know my character and you know my nature, the red flags will go up and you'll say, I know what I'm feeling right now and I know what I'm experiencing right now and this test is killing me, but God is still good. This test is driving me insane and it's not even a test. It, may not, it just may just be the hardship that you're walking through. Maybe that God isn't just introducing this thing. Sometimes he does introduce the things. But here's why he does this. Years ago, a young boy asked me the question, super profound, because he was only like 10 years old when he asked me. He said, if God already knew that he wasn't going to ask Abraham to give up his son, then why did he do it in the first place? Because as the scripture says, God says, well, now I know that you wouldn't do that. He's God. He's omniscient. He knows everything. God never asks us or, or has us walk through a test because he needs to know what's in our heart, church. He allows us to walk through tests so that we know what's in our heart. It's the test that reveals to us what's in our heart. We can say we don't have a problem with something until we have a problem with something. We can say there wouldn't be any issue if that happened, but then there's an issue when that happens. You know, I think about this with friends of mine when they've been parts of churches that go through transformation and church transformation. And you take an old church culture and a new church culture and people in the old church culture are like, no, we're fine with change. Everything's fine. Everything's good. Oh, yeah, well, you know that piano that you have in the front of the church? We're going to get rid of it. <gasps> you think their world's going to come apart. I'm like, why is that? Because in theory, everything seems to work fine. Then you put something actually in front of them that's tangible and now you really know what's in their heart. That's the way that it works. That's the way it works in all of us. When God allows testing to come through us or to us, it's not because he's trying to understand what's in our heart, church. It's because he wants us to see what's in our heart. But when we know God's nature and we know God's promises, we will grow in relationship with God. 1 Peter 1.7 says this, these trials, says these trials will show that your faith is, is genuine. Can we get 1 Peter 1 7 up, guys? These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. That's the whole point of trials and tests. It refines and shows us that our faith is genuine. It helps us dig in to know the character and the nature of God 
to grab hold of the promises that God has given us through Scripture and to be obedient so in the process we can grow closer to God and it becomes refined so that, as the writer says, it's even more precious. And he uses gold because that's supposed to be the most valuable thing on this earth. But in heaven, remember, it's nothing because when John talks about heaven in Revelation, he says that in heaven the streets were paved with what? Gold. Gold. That's imagery, folks. Doesn't mean we're going to walk on gold. It's a really soft metal. It wouldn't work. It's imagery. What he's saying is that the most valuable thing that we could put our hearts around on this world or in this world in heaven is dirt. Because Jesus has so much more for us and it's more valuable than we could ever hope for or imagine. And he said, in your faith, when you allow it to be refined through trial, will be refined and be more precious than your gold. Because faith is the thing that lasts when we are past this world and we move to the next. Our worship team is going to come as we get ready to close this morning. And I want you to use this opportunity as the team sings this song. But I have a reflection question and it's a question that you could also use in your small groups this week. It's a question, I'm sorry, that's in your notes. And it's this, simply, are there any steps or are there steps of obedience that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you about? What might be making those steps difficult? Sorry, that's truncated at the end there. Are there steps of obedience that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you about? What might be making those steps difficult? You see, God, you might be listening to this this morning, thinking about tests, thinking about steps, thinking about things God's challenging you to do, and you just can't take the next step. Why? What's keeping you from taking the next step? What is it about the nature of God that he's talking to you about this morning? And he's saying, you need to rethink my nature. Or promises. What promises have I given you in Scripture that you're not believing today and you think by taking this step in obedience that it's never going to happen. What is God asking you through his Holy Spirit today to reconsider so that by reconsidering the way you see God or the promises he's already given us will allow you to walk in obedience with what he has for you. It's a simple prayer with deep consequences and that's what this song really is about. It's called Make Room. And I call it, it's like a modern version of I surrender. The verses just say, I will make, or the chorus just says, I will make room for you, Lord, to do whatever you want to, to do whatever you want to, that we're not interested in religiosity. We're not interested in the, the, the structure of religion, which is just coming to church, singing songs, hearing a message and going home. But it's about deepening a relationship with God through Jesus Christ so that we know his nature, so that we know his promises, we can grow in a deep relationship with him. And that's how we succeed and pass the tests of life. Father, I just pray this morning with our hearts bowed towards you that we would make a choice today to say, Lord, whatever you need to do in our lives, do whatever you need to do. Have your way. May your will be done. And may we trust you through this song, may our hearts be open to know your nature, to remember your promises, so that you can do whatever you want to do in us. In Jesus' name we pray.